Section 17 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Isabella of France, Chapter 2, Part 3. On the night of the 22nd of September, 1327, exactly a twelve-month after the return of the Queen to England, the murder of her unfortunate husband was perpetrated, with circumstances of the greatest horror. No outward marks of violence were perceptible on his person when the body was exposed to public view in Gloucester Cathedral, but the rigid and distorted lines of the face bore evidence of the agonies he had undergone, and it is reported that his cries had been heard at a considerable distance from the castle, where this barbarous regicide was committed. Many a one woke, adds the narrator, and prayed to God for the harmless soul, which that night was departing in torture. The public indignation in that part of the country was so greatly excited against the infamous instruments of the Queen and Mortimer, that they were fain to make their escape beyond seas, to avoid the vengeance of the people. The murdered king was interred, without funeral pomp, in Gloucester Cathedral, and Isabella endeavored, by the marriage festivities of her son and his young queen, to dissipate the general gloom, which the suspicious circumstances attending the death of her unhappy consort had occasioned. But so universal was the feeling of disgust, which the conduct of the queen and her favorite Mortimer excited, that nothing but the despotism she had succeeded in establishing enabled her to keep possession of her usurped power. The pacification with Scotland gave great offense to the public, because Isabella bartered for twenty thousand pounds. The claims of the king of England over Scotland, and Mortimer appropriated the money to his own use. By the same treaty, they restored the regalia of Scotland to their rightful owners. The English were indignant that in this regalia was comprised the famous black cross of St. Margaret, which had been one of the crown jewels of their Anglo-Saxon kings. Still more were they enraged that, without sanction of Parliament, the Queen concluded a marriage between the Princess Joanna, an infant five years old, and David Bruce, the heir of Scotland, who was about two years older. She accompanied her young daughter to Berwick, attended by Mortimer, and, in their presence, the royal children were married at that town, July 12, 1328. It was observed that the two brothers of the late king, Thomas of Brotherton and Edmund, Earl of Kent, and Isabella's own uncle, the Earl of Lancaster, with some other magnates, had withdrawn themselves from the National Council, in utter indignation at the late proceedings of the queen, and the insolence of her favorite Mortimer. They perceived, too late, that they had been made the tools of an artful, ambitious, and vindictive woman, who, under the pretense of reforming the abuses of her husband's government, had usurped the sovereign authority, and in one year committed more crimes than the late king and his unpopular ministers together, had perpetrated during the twenty years of his reign. Moreover, the barbarous persecutions and cruel death of their late sovereign made the princes recoil with horror at the idea of their having been, in some measure, accomplices in the guilt of the queen. 
Mortimer had even had the audacity, when Parliament met at Salisbury, October 16, to enter the town at the head of an army, and, bursting into the room where the prelates were assembled, forbade them, under peril of life and limb, to oppose his interests. He then seized on the young king and queen, and carried them off to Winchester. And, far from paying any regard to the Earl of Lancaster's complaints, of the infringement of his office, of guardian of the king's person, he marched to Leicester and plundered his domain there. Isabella's cruelty, her hypocrisy, and the unnatural manner in which she rendered the interests of the young king, her son, subservient to the aggrandizement of her ferocious paramour, Mortimer, excited the indignation of all classes, and a strong party was organized, under the auspices of the Plantagenet princes, for the delivering of the nation from the tyranny of this modern Semiramis. The Earl of Lancaster, who was by this time fully aware of the disposition of his vindictive kinswoman, perceived that he was intended for her next victim, on which he, with the brothers of the late king and their confederates, took up arms and put forth a manifesto containing eight articles, all alarming to the guilty queen and Mortimer, especially the first clause, which threatened inquiry into the unlawful augmentations of her dower, and the fifth regarding the late king's death. The queen mother, aware of the impossibility of meeting such inquiries before Parliament, urged the young king to attack the malcontents, assuring him that the object of his uncle was to deprive him of the throne. The interference of the Archbishop of Canterbury prevented another civil war, and through his exertions, a hollow pacification was effected between Isabella and the princes. It was not, however, in the nature of this princess to forgive any offense that had ever been offered to her, and it is to be observed that her enmity had hitherto always proved fatal to every person who had been so unfortunate as to incur her ill will. With the wariness of a cat, she now examined the characteristic qualities of the members of the royal family, whom she determined to attack separately, since she had found them too strong to engage collectively. She commenced with the Earl of Kent, who had, ever since the death of the king, his brother, suffered the greatest remorse for the part he had taken in the late revolution. Isabella, being aware of his state of mind, caused it to be insinuated to him that the late sovereign, his brother, was not dead, but a prisoner within the walls of Corfe Castle. A friar, whom the earl employed to inquire into the truth of this tale, on finding that every one in that neighborhood confidently believed that the unfortunate Edward II was living, under very close restraint, in the castle, endeavored to obtain access to this mysterious captive. He was shown, at a distance, a person sitting at table, whose air and figure greatly resembled that of the deceased king, whom, indeed, he was meant to personate. The Earl of Kent, anxious to make reparation to his royal brother, for the injuries he had done him, hastened to Corfe Castle, and boldly demanded of the governor, to be conducted to the apartment of Sir Edward of Carnarvon, his brother. The governor did not deny that King Edward was in the castle, but protested the impossibility of permitting any one to see him. The earl then prevailed on him to take charge of a letter for his illustrious prisoner. This letter was immediately conveyed to Queen Isabella, 
and used by her as a pretense for the arrest of the deluded prince. This was done at Winchester, where the Parliament was then assembled. Earl Edmund was impeached of high treason before the peers. His own letter was the chief evidence produced against him, together with his confession, in which he acknowledged that a certain friar preacher of London told him he had conjured up a spirit, who assured him that his brother, Edward, was still alive. Also that Sir Ingram Berenger brought him a letter from the Lord Zouchet, requesting his assistance in the restoration of his late sovereign. For this impossible treason, he was sentenced to lose his head. His arraignment took place on Sunday, March 13, 1329, Isabella's Sundays being no holidays, and he was condemned to die on the morrow. All that day, says the chroniclers, the king was so beset by the queen his mother and the Earl of March, that it was impossible for him to make any efforts to preserve his uncle from the cruel fate to which he had been so unjustly doomed. This murder, which was designed by Isabella as an intimidation to the princes of the blood royal, had the effect of increasing the abhorrence in which she was now held throughout the kingdom. The queen presented Mortimer's son, Geoffrey, grants of the principal part of the estates of the princely victim. The death of Charles Le Bel, without male issue, having left Isabella the sole surviving child of Philip Le Bel, her eldest son, Edward III, considered that he had the best claim to the sovereignty of France. The twelve peers of France decided otherwise, and gave, first the regency, and then, on the birth of the posthumous daughter of Charles Le Bel, the throne, to Philip of Valois, the cousin of their late king. Edward was eager to assert his claim, as the nephew of that monarch and the grandson of Philip Le Bel, but his mother, deceived by overtures from France for a double marriage, between her daughter Eleanor and the heir of Valois, and her second son and Philip's daughter, not only prevented him from asserting his own claims, but compelled him, sorely against his will, to acknowledge those of his rival, by performing homage for the provinces held of the French crown. Edward returned from his last conference with King Philip at Amens, out of humor with himself, and still more so with his mother. The evil odor in which Isabella's reputation was generally held, both at home and abroad, though perhaps concealed from him in his own court, where he was as yet but a state puppet, surrounded by her creatures, was conveyed to him through a variety of channels, as soon as he was beyond the limits of her usurped authority. The pride, the cruelty, and insolence of Mortimer were represented to the king by his faithful friends. With other circumstances, tending to convince him of the infamy of the queen mother's connection with that favorite. Edward was sensibly touched when informed of these things, and determined no longer to be a quiescent witness of his mother's dishonor. The Parliament was summoned to meet at Nottingham a fortnight after Michaelmas, and the youthful sovereign considered that it would be a favorable time for the arrest of his mother's paramour, when all the barons of England were assembled round him in support of his royal authority. Edward had intended to take up his abode at Nottingham Castle, one of his own royal palaces. But Isabella, forestalling his design, had already established herself there, with Mortimer and his strong guard of armed followers. Isabella had used the precaution of ordering the keys of the castle to be brought to her, and at night, for greater security, she placed them under her pillow. 
The particulars of this most interesting crisis are best related in the words of the lively chronicler, from whom Stowe has taken his graphic narrative of the arrest of the queen and her lover. There was a parliament where Roger Mortimer was in such glory and honor that it was without all comparison. No man durst name him other than the Earl of March, and a greater rout of men waited at his heels than on the king's person. He would suffer the king to rise to him, and would walk with him equally, step by step, and cheek by cheek, never preferring the king, but would go foremost himself with his officers. He greatly rebuked the Earl of Lancaster, cousin to the king, for that without his consent, he appointed certain noblemen to lodgings in the town, asking, Who made him so bold to take up his lodgings close to the queen? With which words, the constable, being greatly feared, alarmed, appointed lodgings for the Earl of Lancaster a full mile out of the town, where was lodged John Bohun, the Earl of Hereford, Lord High Constable of England, by which means a great contention arose among the noblemen and the common people, who called Roger Mortimer, the Queen's paragon and the King's master, who destroys the King's blood and usurps the regal majesty. All this troubled the King's friends, and William Montague, and others, drew to them Robert de Holland, keeper of Nottingham Castle, unto whom all secret corners of the same were known. Then, on a certain night, the king lying without the castle, both he and his friends were brought, by torchlight, through a secret way underground, beginning far from the castle, till they came even to the queen's chamber, which they by chance found open. They, being armed with naked swords in their hands, went forwards, leaving the king armed without the chamber door, lest his mother should espy him. They entered in, slew Sir Hugh Turpington, who resisted them, and to John Neville they gave a deadly wound. From thence they went to the Queen Mother, whom they found with the Earl of March, just ready to go to bed. And, having seized the said Earl, they led him into the hall, the Queen following, crying out, Belle Fills, eyes petit gentle Mortimer, for she knew her son was there, though she saw him not. She likewise entreated Montague and his people to do no harm to the person of Mortimer, because he was a worthy knight, her dear friend, and well-beloved cousin. No reply was made to her intercession, and Mortimer was hurried away, the castle locked on the queen, and all her effects sealed up. The next morning, Roger Mortimer and his friends were led prisoners towards London. As soon as they appeared, the populace of Nottingham and the nobles of the king's party set up a tremendous shout, the Earl of Lancaster, who was at that time blind, joining in the outcry, and making violent gesticulations for joy. On his arrival in London, Mortimer was for a few hours committed to the tower, previous to his summary execution. Froissart, after relating very briefly the execution of the Earl of Kent, which he attributes to the Queen Mother and Mortimer, proceeds to say, Not long after, great infamy fell upon the Queen Mother. Whether with just cause or not, I am ignorant. But in this, the Lord Mortimer was inculpated. The King then ordered him to be arrested and brought to London, and before him and a very great number of the barons and nobles of the realm, a knight, by the King's command, recited the deeds of the Lord Mortimer, from a declaration he held in his hand. Every one was then asked, by way of counsel, what sentence should be given. Judgment was soon given. 
for each had perfect knowledge of the facts, from good report and information. They replied to the king's question, that he ought to suffer the same death as Sir Hugh de Spencer the Younger, which sentence had neither delay nor mercy. This was instantly carried into effect, without waiting to hear what the accused had to say in his own vindication. Sir Simon Burford and John Deverell, who were taken in the Queen's antechamber at Nottingham Castle, earnestly desired to disclose the particulars of Edward II's murder, but were not permitted to disburden their consciences of their guilty knowledge, lest they should too deeply implicate the Queen Mother. Mortimer was the first person executed at Tyburn, which was then known by the name of Elms. Burford and Deverell were executed with him. His body hung on the gallows at Tyburn, two days and nights, by the especial order of the king. It was then taken down and buried in the Greyfriars Church, within Newgate, of which Queen Isabella was a benefactress. Isabella was spared the ignominy of a public trial, through the intercession of the Pope, John Twenty Second who wrote to the young king, exhorting him not to expose his mother's shame. After this, Edward attributed all her crimes to the evil influence of Mortimer, as may be seen in the royal declaration to Parliament, of the reasons which induced him to inflict the punishment of death on that great state criminal. In the ninth article of this posthumous arraignment, it is set forth that, the said Roger falsely and maliciously sowed discord, between the father of our lord the king and the queen his companion making her believe that if she came near her husband he would poignard her or murder her in some other manner wherefore by this cause and by other subtleties the said queen remained absent from her said lord to the great dishonor of the king and of the said queen his mother and great damage perhaps of the whole nation hereafter which god avert one of the first acts of the emancipated monarch, after the gallant achievement by which he had rendered himself master of his own realm, was to strip the queen-mother of the unconscionable dower to which she had helped herself, and to reduce her income to one thousand pounds a year. It was also judged expedient by his council to confine her to one of the royal fortresses at some distance from the metropolis, lest by her intriguing disposition she should excite fresh troubles in the realm. Froissart, after relating the particulars of Mortimer's death, adds, The king soon after, by the advice of his council, ordered his mother to be confined in a goodly castle, and gave her plenty of ladies to wait upon her, as well as knights and squires of honor. He made her a handsome allowance, to keep and maintain the state to which she had been accustomed, but forbade her ever to go out or show herself abroad, except at certain times, and when any shows were exhibited in the court of the castle. Castle Rising, in Norfolk, was the place where Queen Isabella was destined to spend the long years of her widowhood. It had belonged to the Albinis, from whom it passed to the lords of Montalt. The widow of the last baron of that line had surrendered it to Queen Isabella, during her regency, for an annuity of four hundred pounds per annum. It was a noble pile, built in 1176, by William Albini, husband to Queen Adelicia. It was constructed in the manner of Norwich Castle, on a bold eminence surrounded by a high bank and deep vallum. The walls were three yards thick, the keep was a large square tower, encompassed with a deep ditch and bold rampart, on which was a strong wall with three towers. Enough remains to show that Castle Rising must have been a most formidable, 
if not impregnable fortress. Froissart says, the queen passed her time there meekly, by which our readers are to understand that she neither devised plots nor treasons against the government of her illustrious son, Edward III, and gave no further cause for public scandal. More than one ancient historian hints that, during her long confinement, Isabella was afflicted with occasional fits of derangement. It is asserted that these aberrations commenced in a violent access of madness, which seized her while the body of Mortimer hung on the gallows. Her agonies were so severe that, among the common people, the report prevailed for some months that she died at the time the body was taken down. These traditions led us to conclude that for many months the populace did not know what had become of her. Her retired life, unconnected with conventual vows, must have strengthened the reports of her derangement, which was attributed to the horrors of conscience. She was in her sixth and thirtieth year when her seclusion at Castle Rising commenced. The king, her son, generally, when in England, visited her twice or thrice a year, and never permitted any one to name her in his presence other than with the greatest respect. It is to be observed that Edward's counsel, in regard to the petitions of certain individuals for the recovery of money due to them during her government, are by him referred to the advice of Queen Isabella. Her name is carefully guarded from all reproach in the rolls of Parliament, which nevertheless abound in disputes relative to her regency. There is one petition from the poor lieges of the forest of Macclesfield to King Edward, declaring that, Madam, his mother, holds the forest as her heritage, and yet the bailiff of Macclesfield kills her venison and destroys her wood. Isabella is not named as queen, but only as Madame, the king's mother. The king replies, Let this petition be shown to the queen, that her advice may be learned thereon. During the first two years of Isabella's residence at Castle Rising, her seclusion appears most rigorous, but, in 1332, from various notations, the fact may be gathered that her condition was ameliorated. That year King Edward declared that, as his dearest mother had simply and spontaneously surrendered her dower into his hands, he has assigned her divers other castles and lands to the amount of twenty thousand pounds. The same year this dower was settled, she was permitted to make a pilgrimage to Lady Shrine of Walsingham, not far from her residence in Norfolk. This is evidence from the ancient Latin records of the Corporation of Lynn, which is in the neighborhood of Castle Rising. There is an entry of twenty shillings for bread sent to Isabella, Queen Dowager, when she came from Walsingham. Also four pounds for a cask of wine, three pounds, eighteen shillings, six pence, for a piece of wax, and two pounds for barley. Also three shillings for the carriage of these purchases. King Edward restored to his mother, two years afterwards, the revenues of Ponthieu and Montreuil, which were originally the gift of her murdered lord. The same year, 1334, her son, John of Eltham, died in the bloom of life, and her daughter, Eleanor, was married to the Duke of Geldress. Edward III likewise visited his mother at Risings. The records of Lynn return this notice, dated 1334. The Queen Isabella sent her precept to the mayor to provide her eight carpenters to make preparations for the king's visit. In 1337, Edward III again made some stay at Castle Rising with his mother, and Adam de Riffham of Lynn, 
sent him a present of wine on this occasion. Once only we have evidence that Isabella visited the metropolis. This was in the twelfth year of her son's reign, when she is witness to the delivery of the great seal in its purse, by King Edward to Robert de Burghersh, in the grand chamber of the Bishop of Winchester's palace in Southwark. Parliament granted to Edward III an aid of thirty thousand sacks of wool, and by writ, dated February twenty seventh, thirteen forty three, the barons of the exchequer were forbidden to levy any part from the lands and manors of the queen mother, because it was unreasonable that a person exempt and not summoned to the parliament should be burthened with aids granted by parliament. The same year Isabella received another visit from the king, her son. On this occasion, the Lynn records note that. Eleven pounds, thirteen shillings, ten pence, was expended for meat sent to Our Lady Queen Isabella. There is an item for four pounds, sixteen shillings, one pence, paid by the corporation, for a present sent to the household of Our Lord the King, at Thorndines, at his first coming to Rising, and three pence for a horse sent by a messenger to Rising. The corporation is also answerable for twelve pence, given to William of Lakenham, the falcon-bearer at Risings. Four shillings, three pence, given to the messengers and minstrels of Queen Isabella. Two shillings, eight pence, for wine sent to the queen's maid. And twelve pence, a largest for the Earl of Suffolk's minstrels. Barreled sturgeon was a favorite food at the queen's table, and it was certainly very costly, when compared with the price of other viands. The corporation of Lynn, the same year, sent gifts of a pipe of wine and a barrel of sturgeon, costing together nine pounds, twelve shillings, nine pence, to their lady Queen Isabella, and moreover, paid John, the butcher, money for conveying the said gifts to Castle Rising. They sent to her treasurer and seneschal gifts of wine that cost forty pence, and presented twelve shillings to John de Windsor, and other men of the king's family, when at Rising besides two pence given to a servant looking for stray horses from the castle. Likewise forty pence given to the steward of Rising, when he came to obtain horses, for use of King Edward. A barrel of sturgeon cost as much as two pounds fifteen shillings. The men of Lynn note that they paid eleven pounds, for four barrels sent at different times, as gifts to the queen at Castle Rising, and twenty shillings for two quarter barrels of sturgeon, sent by her servant, Perrot. The supply of herrings, as gifts from the men of Lynn, amounted to six pounds, and they sent her a hundred and three quarters of wax, at a cost of four pounds, sixteen shillings, one pence. In the eighteenth year of his reign, King Edward dates several letters to the Pope from Castle Rising. A curious plan for annoyance of King Edward was devised, in the year 1348, by the French monarch, who proposes to make the Queen Dowager of France and Isabella the mediatrices of a peace. They were to meet between Calais and Boulogne. But Edward was too wise to fall into the snare of attracting public attention to the guilty and degraded mother, from whom his claims to the throne of France were derived. Isabella was not suffered to take any part in the negotiation. The succeeding documents prove that the treaty was completed by the Duke of Lancaster and the Count of Eu. In the thirty-first year of his reign, King Edward granted safe conduct to William de Leith, to wait on Queen Isabella at her castle of Rising, he coming from Scotland, probably with news from her daughter, Queen Joanna, who was then very sick. This person was physician to the Queen of Scotland. 
The next year Isabella died at Castle Rising, August 22nd, 1358, aged 63. She chose the Church of Grey Friars, where the mangled remains of her paramour, Mortimer, had been buried, eight and twenty years previously, for the place of her interment and carrying her characteristic hypocrisy even to the grave she was buried with the heart of her murdered husband on her breast king edward gave his mother a pompous funeral and issued a precept to the sheriffs of london and middlesex november twentieth to cleanse the streets from dirt and all impurities and to gravel bishopsgate street and aldgate against the coming of the body of his dearest mother queen isabella and directs the officers of his exchequer to distribute nine pounds for that purpose. Isabella was interred in the choir of the Grey Friars, within Newgate, and had a fine alabaster tomb erected to her memory. She had given sixty-two pounds towards the building of this church. It was usual for persons buried in the Grey Friars to be wrapped in the garment of the order, as a security against the attacks of the foul fiend. Queen Isabella was buried in that garment, and few stood in more need of such protection. According to Bloomfield, local tradition asserts that Queen Isabella lies buried in Castle Rising Church, and that all the procession to the Grey Friars in London was but an empty pageant. In confirmation of this assertion, they point out a simple grey stone, with its inscription deeply cut, Isabella Regina. Antiquaries, however, are of opinion that this stone covers the grave of one of the officers, or ladies, who died in her service at Castle Rising but it is also possible that she might have bequeathed her heart to her parish church, and that this inscription may denote the spot where it was interred. An effigy of Isabella is to be seen, in the most exquisite preservation, among the figures which adorn the tomb of her son, John of Eltham, at Westminster Abbey. It is the third from the right, when the examiner stands with his back to St. Edward's Chapel. The workmanship of this, and the other statues of John of Eltham's kindred, is of the most delicate kind. The easiness of the attitudes, united with minute attention to details, denote an artist of superior genius. The effigies are all cast in bronze, and the row opposite to St. Edward's Chapel are so well secured from the mischievous assaults of abbey depredators by the grill of thick iron, which parts the tomb from the passage, that they are in the same state as when they came from the hands of the artist. First stands the mother of Isabella, the Queen of France and Navarre. She exactly resembles her portrait engraved in Mount Faucon. Then stands the effigy of Isabella's father, Philip Le Bel. Next is given Isabella herself. Her head is remarkably broad and low, and she has considerable breadth over the cheekbones. She is very like her mother, but her features are pretty, with a laughing expression. The effigy is identified as hers by the garb of royal widowhood. She wears a crown on the top of her hood. Her veil hangs on each side of her face. The widow's barb appears half covering her chin, and a scepter is in her hand. Such was certainly her dress at Castle Rising, at the death of her son, Prince John, in 1334, and such must have been her costume during the remainder of her life, since widows in those times wore the dress of mourning all their lives, unless they found second husbands. The effigy of her murdered lord, Edward II, stands next hers. It is extremely like that on his tomb at Gloucester. 
Isabella's virtuous daughter, Joanna, Queen of Scotland, the faithful and devoted consort of the unfortunate David Bruce, survived her mother only a few days, and was interred in the castle of the Grey Friars within Newgate. Some authors assert that, on the same day, London witnessed the solemn pageant of the entrance of the funeral procession of the two queens, one from the eastern and the other from the northern road, and that, entering the church by opposite doors, the royal buyers met at the high altar. After a separation of thirty years, the evil mother and the holy daughter were united in the same burial rite. End of section 17